please be with, be with us this morning. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Priorities. They are what separate the wise and the foolish. Priorities, that is, having them and keeping your priorities, is the key to a fruitful life. And you know this in your own life uh, as your life is ebbed and flowed in different seasons where you were good at having priorities and good at maintaining and keeping them, uh, versus times in your life where you uh, misplaced your priorities, or if you were being honest with yourself, you didn't really even have any codified in any kind of way that was intelligible to you. But we all know in principle that if we're going to move forward in a fruitful way in our lives, we're going to have to have priorities, and we're going to have to maintain priorities, whether that's in your marriage, and it's rearing children, uh, or you know, if you're going to college and going to school, we know just how important it is as you go to college and you're getting education. That there are so many things around you vying for attention that you would say, I'm here for what purpose and for what purposes. I'm here to get an education so that I can go be fruitful in my life. But yet we've seen over and over again, particularly in the college experience, where people uh, are moved and they begin prioritizing things uh, different than what initially brought them there. And then they deal with the consequences of those mistakes and errors uh, in, their, in their life and decisions because they didn't maintain the right priorities in school. But it doesn't stop at school. I mean, even when it comes to planning your retirement, statistically, most people are behind in saving for retirement. So as I look around here, uh, we all, when it comes to even thinking about the rest of our lives as we get old, if the Lord tarries and he keeps us here that long, uh, we're, most of us are behind in saving for retirement. And so there are decisions and commitments that we need to make in our lives that keep us focused on the goal, whatever that is, even in your personal life, that we have to be committed. We have to have priorities. According to the Bible, there is one event that is yet to come that should have priority in our lives, that we should keep in our mind as, as a, a place and an event that I need to make sure that I am in attendance for. As a matter of fact, attendance to this event determines eternal joy eternal bliss, or judgment. Luke's gospel that we'll be in this morning calls it the great banquet, uh, an event in history future where God gathers those who are in Christ, and then he has a celebratory feast for all of those who, in this life, had the right priority and maintained the right priority, which is their relationship with Christ through turning from their sins and placing their trust in him. And he's going to then have a banquet, a feast to celebrate the reality of lost being found, sinners being saved, the unrighteous clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And even in the parable that we'll look at this morning in Luke 14, and if you're not there, I'd encourage you to open up your Bible there to Luke chapter 14, uh, we're going to recognize that there is something that Jesus wants us to focus on and prioritize, and that is there's coming a time that there is going to be a banquet, and we have to ask ourselves, are we going to be there? And as the scripture unfolds and tells us, it has everything to do with what we prioritize here in this life to determine if we're going to be at that banquet in that life. Our main point this morning in your notes and on your screen is simply this, that we must work diligently to ensure that we, nor anybody else, carelessly reject an invitation to God's eschatological banquet. Eschatological, big word, means it's, the, it's coming in the end times. It's in that next eschaton as God comes and he uh, pours out justice on the world and he takes those, as the Bible says, uh, separates the sheep and the goats, the wheat and the chaff. Uh, as he does those things, there's going to be then an eschatological banquet that, that we get to be a part of if we haven't stubbornly chose to pursue our own ambitions. 
So it ought to be our commitment. It ought to be our desire to ensure that we ourselves are going to be at this banquet and that we diligently want to work to make sure that nobody else misses that invitation to the banquet that God has prepared for those who love him and for those who are called according to his purpose, as Romans 8 says. As your eyes are on Luke chapter 14, I want you to put your eyes on there as we skim through verses 1 through 14, just to show you a little bit of the context that Jesus finds himself. Uh, This context, as Jesus begins talking about this banquet that we're going to be looking at, he finds himself at a dinner. And as he's sitting at the dinner and he's observing the people who are there, which is made up of you know, just the, the normal uh, Jew. Uh, also, maybe there's some Pharisees and some other religious leaders. So there's really a mix of people here. And as he, he's observing how they're acting at this dinner table, he begins giving them three kinds of warnings and instruction of the things that they're prioritizing versus the things that they ought to be prioritizing. To sum those up there in the first six verses, you have Jesus calling out the lack of compassion that these people, these guests are showing to those who could not benefit them. Jesus is saying, you guys are playing favorites and you're prioritizing those people who could benefit you. And he says, there's really no reward in that. As a matter of fact, the reward in that is here. And that's all you're going to get. If you're only going to benefit those who benefit you, what more are you doing, as we talked about in Matthew a couple of weeks ago, than the hypocrites? So Jesus is saying, the problem in your heart is you're trying to get ahead in life and you're trying to use people to get you ahead in life. Like all you're focused on are your priorities and you have nothing of God's priorities in your mind or in your heart. And he admonishes them and says, you ought not to live this way or think this way and also believe that you have a dinner plate waiting for you at the banquet. And secondly, in the next few verses, Jesus calls out the self-centeredness of how these people, they walk in and they thrust themselves in the place of honor. So what would happen at these banquets are some people would walk in and they would just assume that they're the head of the table. They would assume that when they walk in, they're the person who needs to be showed honor. I'm important. Care about me. Focus on me. And they made the mistake of walking in and taking the prominent seat. And Jesus warned them, be careful of walking into the banquet and taking the prominent seat as if you're the most important person in there. Because the embarrassment that's going to come upon you is this. Someone more honorable than you will walk in and they will ask you to go down to the less honorable spot so the person who is there for honor would be sitting in that spot. He's calling out this self-centered attitude that really is pervasive even in the culture that you and I live in today, that we want to make things about us, that we want to make sure that people notice us. And really, uh, if that's our attitude and our heart disposition, Jesus is saying that's a dangerous place because if what we're doing here is caring for here only, we're not going to have an appetite for the heavenly banquet. Our appetite is only going to be to grab the attention of here. And Jesus says, be careful, because as we focus on ourselves and on these things here, we begin hungering for the things of the world, and you lose your hunger and your thirst for the kingdom banquet that is awaiting for you. And those priorities begin taking over in your life, and you think nothing of God and much about yourself. And then lastly... In verses 12 through 14, Jesus shows the proper motives that everyone should have when they are making everyday plans. He's saying, listen, when you're making everyday plans, don't make it about your own personal advancement every day. I mean, this ain't about climbing the ladder every day. Not saying that we don't like, there's not a place for successful Christians, successful businessmen and women, but the reality is your life isn't designed simply for you, yourself, and you. It's designed to give glory to God through what you do. And there is not much glory to be able to give to God for somebody who wants all the glory for themselves. And Jesus says, don't make this mistake because this is how everyone at the dinner was acting. And this sets up where we're at here, starting in verse 15, if you put your eyes on the text in Luke chapter 14. When Luke shows us just how self-centered the people are who are around Jesus right now and exactly why Jesus is pointing out these issues and how people at this banquet think they're going to be at the banquet of God in eternity. And Jesus gives them this warning. And here's how we know these people were self-centered. As Jesus begins talking about, hey, don't live for yourself. You need to be paying attention to those who, for instance, can't reward you. Perhaps the crippled and the lame, those that you should invite to your banquet, the kind of the broken heart of the poor in spirit, those who when people walk in, they're going to be like, wow, this party is super lame. Right? Those you wouldn't invite because your party won't be exciting enough. He's like, you need to focus on those people too. Don't leave them out just because you want to look better than other people. 
And he says, and if you do that, there is going to be in the future, at the resurrection, God's going to reward you and bless you for the faithfulness of not counting this life as most significant, but that you live in this life with the next life in mind. And right after Jesus says this, look at verse 15. Listen to what one of, the, what one of those at the dinner said. When one of those who reclined at the table heard Jesus saying these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And this sounds great at first glance. Like, yeah, amen. Blessed are those who are going to be eating at the kingdom of God in his kingdom at his table. And this is exactly what Jesus was calling out in these people because in their sin and in their self-centeredness and in their selfish ambitions and in the fact that they prioritize all the things of themselves and not the things of God, this guy still had the gall to believe that he was going to be at the dinner, which is the problem, isn't it? That everybody always thinks they're going to be in heaven regardless of anything in their life here. Everyone thinks you're going to be in eternity because at the end of the day, they believe it's all going to pan out, which is exactly what this man said. Instead of heeding the warnings of Jesus to say, those who lack compassion, right? those who are self-centered, right? those who want to prioritize their own ambitions and plans, they have no place in the kingdom. And as this man is doing just those things, he ignores Jesus and he says, I'll see y'all there. Let's see the problem in the text. And so with that being said, Jesus shares this parable that we'll be looking at this morning as you look in verse 16. But Jesus said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at that time, that came for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. You see, in an age without clocks, in an age without internet, a time was a little more fluid. And so uh, it was customary in that time to send two invitations. The first invitation to tell them that the event is coming. The second invitation to tell them it's ready. It's really not unlike a formal wedding in our time, where at first we send them a save the date, and then second, we send them an invitation to the wedding. It was a very formal way to invite people and let them know to RSVP, and then, hey, I'm going to send you another one that tells you when everything is so you can get here. In the same way, that's what the servant had done, and he had made these arrangements. The banquet was ready, and the master says, all right, come on in. And then we see the servant who goes out there, and one by one, the guests begin making excuses as to why they would not attend the master's banquet. And we see that starting in verse 18. In verse 18, it says, As they made excuses, the first one said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go see it. Please have me excused. So we have a man who had invested his money in real estate, which is a pretty wise thing to do. But it says that he's bought a field, and now he has to go look at it. Well, the foolishness in that is who buys a field without looking at it first? Right? We don't have, they didn't have Zillow back then or Redfin. Right? They didn't have that stuff. Right? It would be foolish for them to buy a field without first inspecting it. And it shows them that not only are their priorities out of line by neglecting the master, their life just doesn't make sense altogether in some ways. Secondly, after he asked to be excused, another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I need to go examine them. So this man buys 10 oxen. It'd be equivalent to you and me buying some tractors or some heavy machinery and he says, hey, I bought these oxen, and now I need to go e examine them, which means test them or try them out. It's like we call them test drives for a reason, because we test them before we buy them. And this guy, after he has bought these 10 oxen, this heavy machinery, then says, mm, I'm gonna, I can't come because now i got to go try out my heavy machinery. Now, obviously, the foolishness is very clear in these first two, uh, but here's the ultimate foolishness. If you've already obtained possession of the field and you've already obtained possession of the ox, they'll be here tomorrow. They'll be here this weekend when you have extra time. They're not going anywhere because they're yours. The foolishness that we really see in this text is wrong priorities, the wrong attitude to prioritize me, myself, and I before I prioritize the master's invitation for me to dine with him and to live for him. The problem becomes when we say that our life is more important than that to which God offers us. Thirdly, you have another man. And this other man said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. Now this one, this one sounds noble, doesn't it? This one sounds like that's what a, good, what a guy. 
committing to his wife, prioritizing his wife. What a good man. Uh, There's two things to keep in mind. One, there are actually scriptures in the Old Testament that do uh, set forth uh, judicially and governmentally in that culture that when a man, a young man, takes a wife, he is then relieved from military duty and other things that may take him away from his wife so that he can build a family, lay a good foundation, and get ready to have kids and raise them in a godly way. So on one hand, the Bible seems to lend some credence to this man's excuse. But what we recognize is there's nowhere in Scripture that says you can't get your wife dressed up in a nice pretty dress and take her out to a great banquet. Okay, What young wife would not, after she got married, love to go with her man to a banquet? They would. The problem you see in this Scripture over and over again is that it's not that you couldn't go It's that you wouldn't go. It's not that you really had a good excuse. You just had something that was a plausible enough reason to say you're not going to do it. And as we look at it from the 21st century's perspective, we recognize that although plausible, they're not reasonable excuses. These are things that you are using as an excuse to not do the thing that you were supposed to do, the thing that you say that you love, the God you say you want to follow, you're just making a reasons why you're not going to do it today. You see, it's clear that as we look at the excuses, however plausible or implausible they may be, wherever you sit on that, uh, what we're going to see here is what each one of these people have done is prioritize their own plans above God's plans. The problem that we see here has to do with people and salvation. I mean, this is what the parable is all about. Parables are about salvation. When you're reading parables in the Bible, they're teaching you about salvation about righteousness, about judgment, about the goodness of God, about the sinfulness of man. And here we have the same thing. And we have Jesus saying, a commitment to your own plans may prevent you from spending eternity with God. If you would, I'd love for you to sum it up this way in point number one. We need to make sure that we don't let excuses keep us from God's banquet. Don't let excuses keep you from God's banquet. I don't want you to make a mistake, okay? Many of you in here, uh, I think maybe you, you really like uh, masculine men who don't like stories and parables, and you just want to stick to the facts, okay? Uh, the problem that, that we often have is you're that kind of man, you're like, I don't want to hear a story, a fictional story that tries to tell me something. You need to recognize something about parables, though, right? You, may, you don't have to like fiction to recognize that even though a parable, which is a fictional story, is designed to connect common, everyday things to real spiritual realities. And so you don't have to be in love love with, with fiction. You don't have to love quick little pithy stories to recognize Jesus isn't just telling us a story. He's connecting something that we can understand to something that we have a hard time comprehending. And so for us, we need to recognize something here, that Jesus isn't just telling us a story. He's telling us about something that is happening and it is coming, and that particular thing is his banquet, that he already has a date on the calendar, and he says, there will be no seat empty at this banquet, and I will bring people in, and I will fill my kingdom with people to eat of this banquet. To show you a couple examples of that, I want you to just go ahead and look up a couple of verses from where we are at Luke 14. Uh, 14 through 15. What I want to show you is Jesus isn't just making up something new, right? A lot of people accuse Jesus of bringing up a lot of new information or teaching things that, you know, that was unknown at the time. And there are very few things uh, as we even going through Matthew to recognize that Jesus was really just unveiling and giving further illumination to all the things that we already knew. And this is exactly the same concept here as we think about this great banquet. When Jesus says, there's a banquet coming, and those who are going are the ones who prioritize God over themselves. And we ought not to think that's a new concept. As a matter of fact, Scripture tells us clearly, even as we look at verse 14, starting there in Luke, when it says that Jesus says, you all be blessed. You remember I talked about that earlier. Because they cannot repay you. As you prioritize the things of God, uh, you're awaiting to be repaid, according to verse 14, at the resurrection of the just. Did you see that? We as Christians aren't looking to have all of our recompense and all of our repayment, all of our blessings in this life. 
We're going to live for the Lord in this life, expecting God to honor his word in that life as he blesses us and gives honor to those who are faithful to him in in all things. Now, I want you to notice in verse 15 uh, what the individual said. Like I said earlier, one of those who reclined at the table, when he heard this, he said, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. That should flip a switch in your mind to say they knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. They knew exactly of the meal in the kingdom that was going to happen on the schedule. Jesus didn't have to say it. They already knew this was part of history. This was already a part of knowing who God was to know that there was a time in the future where there was going to be a heavenly banquet that those who are in Christ will attend. He knew it. He said it before Jesus even brought it up because this was a very common understanding of our eschatological future as people of God. Now, there's other scriptures. One I'd like to turn you to is Luke 22. So in your Bible, why don't you turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, which you should be already in, and just turn a few pages to chapter 22. This one should uh, spark some interest in you because what you see happening here is something that you and I participate in regularly if you are a Christian and you attend church regularly. Here in Luke 22, starting in verse 14, we have Jesus... uh, initiating the Lord's Supper. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So he's saying this Passover that you did in remembrance of God taking Israel out of Egypt and through the Red Sea into the, uh, in through the desert and the wilderness and into the promised land, that thing that you saw me do when I delivered Israel from Egypt That's the thing they did every year to remember what God had done. And now Jesus is turning it to be a commemoration for him being the lamb that was slain. Instead of the blood being over the door and the lintel at the Passover, Jesus says, now I am the lamb. And then as you trust in the blood of the lamb, now when God comes, he will pass over your sins because you've placed your trust in me. So Jesus takes this meal that they took every year throughout the history of Israel, and he then turned it to its main focus, which was the coming of Christ. And he says, now when you take this meal, it's about me. It's always been about me, but now I've revealed to you that it is about me. And just as the lamb covered the doorpost in the Old Testament, and as the angel of death went over the houses throughout Egypt, they didn't kill anyone who had the blood on the home. In the same way, for those who have the blood of Christ on them, the judgment of God will pass over them, thus the Passover. And now Jesus, as he's teaching this to the disciples... He tells them this, for I tell you in verse 16 that I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Did you hear that? Jesus said, I will not eat of this again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Even as he's teaching them about the meal that they're taking, he's saying there's coming a time when all things are fulfilled that I will eat of this again with you in my father's kingdom. Now, he repeats that again when he says this. And he took a cup in verse 17. And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. When does he say he's going to again dine with his people? When the kingdom of God comes. When the eschatological banquet is prepared and Jesus comes and he takes his church with him and then they dine together at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Marriage supper of the Lamb. That's a good text, isn't it? Revelation 19, flip to there with me. Because what Jesus was telling you here in Luke 14 and in Luke 22, what we see here is them saying, here's something that's going to happen. And Revelation is a prophecy from the Apostle John of not an event that he's trying to tell you is going to happen, but he sees the prophecy of the event actually taking place. And so this prophecy is showing us This is happening. This is a promise that God has given, and he's revealed it to us in Scripture that there's coming a time where when Christ comes back, this banquet is actually going to happen. So if you haven't already, turn to Revelation. If you need help, it's in the back of your book. Revelation 19, start in verse 6. If you have an ESV, it even subtitles it for you, The Marriage Supper of the Lamb. And it says here, Then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. 
and crying out these voices, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And listen to this in verse 9. And the angel said to me, write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. What does the angel say? Blessed is he who is invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed is he who finds admittance into the banquet of God. That's the one who's blessed not the one who prioritized their life here, not the one who sought recognition here and got it. Blessed is the one who is invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, the one who is admitted into the kingdom of God to eat with the Son and dine in the presence of the Father. I want you to recognize, I hope at least that, as we look at the scope at least of the New Testament and as it teaches about this banquet, that you recognize that this parable isn't just this therapeutic story that should help you think positively about life and death. Oh, it sounds good someday, regardless of what happens. I know I'm going to die soon, and things are hard, and I just like to, this story just makes me feel good. It's therapeutic. It's good for me as I'm living here because it makes me feel better about what's going on. It may do that, but that's not the purpose of it. The purpose of it is to show you that there's a real future historical event based on whether or not you were saved from the penalty of your sin in this life, to enjoy the blessings of that life with Christ Jesus. The problem, even that we see in the text, that we see in our own day, is that people make excuses as to why they're not going to follow Christ now. Uh, but they yet, in, in the same way this man did in verse 15, where he says, Blessed is everyone who eat bread in the kingdom of God, assuming that he was going to be there, we too... Uh, make excuses of why we're not going to follow Jesus today, but we just believe that at the end of the day, it's all going to pan out. Right? I just I get it. Although I'm not living for the Lord, I've, I've never surrendered my life to Christ, I reject him, I don't follow him, and even if I say it with my, my mouth, I reject it with the way I live and the way that my heart focuses on me all the time. But I just know at the end of the day, God knows my heart and it's all going to work out. The problem with that statement is God does know your heart, and that's why it won't work out. Because the heart is wicked and deceitful above all things. Scripture says, who can know it? And the truth be told, if we look at our lives, we're grateful that people don't know the contents of our heart most of the time. Because nobody is acquainted with the wickedness of the heart more than you. No one recognizes the sin in your life more than you. And for us to recognize this, that that's why we need to prioritize the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we need to prioritize the fact that God has made a way for you and I to eat at the banquet with him, his holiness and my wretchedness, that he has created a way, even with an expansive chasm between his goodness and our wickedness, that he has created a way for people to come and to dine with him. We make excuses all the time, I don't have time today. I got to focus on other things, whether you like those in verses 18, 19, and 20. You got to focus on your real estate investments. You got to focus on making money. You got to focus on retirement. You got to focus on your family, even like we saw there in verse 20. They're all excuses for why you won't surrender your life to Christ. And if we're going to use those things as excuses, however uh, well taken they are in our culture, God makes it clear that these are no excuses for denying Jesus. Although there's going to be a lot of people that Scripture teaches who or think they're going to the banquet who aren't, there is the good news of the gospel, which is there are a lot of people whose lives will turn out well in the end, people who, who will be invited to the banquet and be sitting there dining with Christ. You see some of those people here in verses 21 through 23 in Luke 14 there in our text. If you could get your eyes on that, Luke 14, 21 through 23. It says this, so the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to the, ser the servant, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the cripple, the blind, and the lame. Now, I want you to draw a distinction of why Jesus says this, okay? What you're noticing here is that those other people who prioritize their real estate investments, their investment in the oxen or the heavy machinery, if you will, and those who prioritize 
you know, the family over God. Basically, you get married, it means you were good enough looking to compel someone to live with you forever, which is great, right? But yet, you now see Jesus talking about to these other people. Go bring the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. It's not that when you get to heaven, you're going to see an, an overabundance of people who in this life were crippled, blind, and lame, and you're not going to see people in heaven who have money and have things. It's, it's not the point of this. And if anybody's ever told you that, they missed the whole point of the gospel. The point about this is priorities. Those who have means, those who have other prospects going on in their life, whether you're just extra talented at something than other people, you have extra money than other people, what you really have is more hurdles to jump over to be in the kingdom of God because those things are going to be vying for your attention every single day of your life. And you are at danger because you have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Christ daily. And those who have prospects in their lives, that's very hard to do. But what does it say? Bring in the poor, crippled, blind, and lame. Because you know what the poor, crippled, blind, and lame don't have going on? much. Okay? So when the invitation of the master says, come on in, they're not sitting there thinking, well, I got me, a, I got my wife. Whew, she's good looking. Mm, I got to get home. Uh, they're not thinking, well, I got 10 oxen I got to go try out. They're not thinking, well, I just bought a field with all of my extra cash I have in my knapsack over here. They're not thinking about those things because they're not, they're not, they don't possess these hurdles. And so they don't have to jump over hurdles that don't exist. Their priorities can be I'm going to that because the master invited me. I'm showing up. You see the point. The point isn't that there's going to be poor, crippled, blind, and lame people are going to be the majority of what's in heaven. The fact of the matter is those are going to be in heaven regardless of your economic well-being is going to be those who prioritize God and didn't allow the cares of the world to take them away from the kingdom of God. And what we see here in the parable is you need to go find those people who are going to prioritize the things of the kingdom. And often those are going to be the people who aren't just poor, crippled, and blind, and lame. The reality of the poor, crippled, blind, and lame is this. Odds are that the crippled on the outside are also crippled on the inside. The broken and the maladies of those externally, there's probably brokenness in their heart. And that's the person who comes to Christ. Whether you're a Wall Street banker or whether you're thumbing it on the side of the road, what gets you into the kingdom is the brokenness that says, I am a sinner, and I'm in need of a Savior, and he invited me into his kingdom, and it is no big thing for me to turn away from myself to get into the kingdom of God. Right? There's, your, there's, there's what he's saying here. The poor and the crippled and the blind and lame, he's talking about the heart. If you don't believe me, we'll get there in a moment. And the servant, in verse 22, as we continue... Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and yet there's still room. And the master said, you've gone to the streets, and you've gone to the city, right? We've gone to city proper. We've gone to the populous areas, and I know there's still room. So here's what we're going to do. Go to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in because my house is going to be full. Okay, obviously the master in the parable is God, and here's what God says. I'm going to the ends of the earth, and there won't be an empty seat at my banquet. You don't have to worry when you get into the kingdom if there's going to be empty seats because there's not. It's going to be full. And that should do a couple of things. It shouldn't just immediately say, well, if, it, if there's going to be a lot of seats, then I'm going to be there. No, it says God's going to make sure that everyone who trusts in him will be there. And we won't look around and think, where is everybody? We're going to look around and say, wow, look at this banquet. It is full to the brim. It is busting at the seams with those who love God and those who want to be filled with God. You see, these poor, crippled, blind, and lame, those who have the heart of a poor, crippled, blind, and lame, the house is going to be full. The kingdom is going to be full of these people. And, and why do I know that? And why, why can I say that it's not about the, the physical impairments that matter? It's about the spiritual impairments that matter. Because if you've been with us for very long, we've been preaching through the gospel of Matthew. And we went week by week, taking one verse at a time through the Beatitudes. And so you remember what Jesus says in the Beatitudes in chapter 5, starting in verse 3. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right? The poor in spirit, those who are in poverty spiritually. I know a lot of wealthy people who in their life, they're spiritually poor and they recognize their need for a savior. And their bank account did not for one moment keep them from turning away from everything and their sin and following Jesus Christ. 
Because who is getting into the kingdom of heaven? Right there, verse three, the poor in spirit, those who are broken and they know that they are impoverished compared to the holiness of God. And they recognize it in their hearts, they're broken. Verse four, those who mourn, blessed are they, they shall be comforted. The meek, the humble, the contrite shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the hungry and the thirsty for righteousness, they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Listen to this. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The only way to get a pure heart is to have your heart transformed by Christ and that heart of stone to be removed and that heart of flesh to be in there. And that only happens through turning from your sin and placing your trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And what Jesus lays out here in the Beatitudes, he's just recapitulating, he's telling us in the parable. The poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame, you know who that is? those who have impoverished spirits, who know that there's no way that they, much like uh, the tax collector in the temple who beats his chest and says, woe is me, I am a sinner. I don't even deserve to be in the presence of God. Lord, forgive me for I am a wretch. Broken heart, broken spirit, which the Bible says God will not reject. But God will reject those, much like verses 18, 19, and 20, who say, I got better things to do. I can do that some other time. But God will not reject. As a matter of fact, his kingdom will be full of those who had impoverished spirits, who mourn over their sin, who humbly approach God. They're gonna inherit the kingdom of God because they hunger and thirst for righteousness. There is no righteousness found in me or you. And so we go to the cross to where righteousness is found and we see the righteousness through Christ. We turn from our sin and we trust in him and he clothes us with his righteousness. The unfortunate reality that we find ourselves in in our culture, and maybe you in this room, is that although you say that may be good for everyone else, that you believe that a tacit connection with the church, uh, the Bible, and some kind, of, some kind of casual connection with Jesus is enough to get you into God's banquet. But that's the problem. Yeah, I go to church every once in a while. I think the pastor could pick me up out of a lineup. Right? I, I, I got some of the Bible memorized. That's, that's enough to get me into eternity. Right? The clear mistake that we see in, in that kind of thinking is just this, a lack of seriousness when it comes to the matter of sin, salvation, righteousness, and God's justice. Anyone who's not willing to turn away from their whole sin doesn't understand just how big of a deal sin is. Jesus did not come down here for a vacation on earth. He was doing great at the right hand of the Father. He was exalted, and the heavenly hosts and the beings were every day saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He was being worshiped every single day. Sin was such a big deal that Jesus stepped into time and space, was clothed in humanity to take your place. You want to know how important and how big of a deal sin is in our life, in this world? That God the Son stepped out of heaven and stepped down here to take your place when it comes to the judgment that was required for the sinfulness of humanity. If it was a big enough deal for God the Son, it's a big enough deal for you to prioritize the things that God prioritizes. Anyone with appropriate view of these realities will, just like the poor and the blind and the lame, they're going to take God's invitation seriously. That's point number two on your outline. You need to take God's invitation seriously. And if you're in here and you're just like, yeah, yeah, okay, pastor, you're, you're, it's compelling, but I just don't care. That's the problem, right? That's the problem. The dinner was great. Verse 18, verse 19, and verse 20, it didn't say the banquet wasn't going to be great. They just said, yeah, I don't care. There's other things I'd rather be doing right now. That's the problem. That's what Jesus is warning us of because he knows the sinful heart of man, and he knows that's exactly how you're going to think. And so instead, he says, you need to take God's invitation seriously because there are many that the Bible records who will not do that. I'd love to take you to one of those examples. Same gospel, we'll stay in Luke, but turn to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. We'll sit in, start in verse 22. Luke 13, starting in verse 22. And, and Jesus, he's journeying to Jerusalem, uh, awaiting his, uh, as he's getting nearer to his execution, He's going and he's teaching through the towns and the villages as he's going towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Love it. Great question. 
This is a question that the Bible wants us to understand. We don't want a vague answer to these kind of questions. We want a very clear answer to these kind of questions. That's why the Bible gives them to us. He answers, will those who are saved be few? And Jesus said to him, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able to. And then he shares a parable. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer to you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, remember this, remember the tacit connection, I go to church, I know some Bible verses, I, you know, the pastor can pick me up, I have a lineup, I, you know, I, I get it, uh, that tacit connection that no real commitment, but I'm kind of there, listen to this. He says, I don't know where you come from. And this is what they're going to say. We ate and drank in your presence. You taught us in the streets. We were there. You don't remember me. You could pick me up out of a lineup. And this is what Jesus has to say. But I will say you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, and again, now we're turning from this eschatological banquet that's coming And now Jesus is turning us to the alternative, right? Either you're going to be here at the eschatological banquet of God, or here's your alternative, right? Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, the other place that you would go, right, we call hell, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourself will be cast out. Now listen, verse 29. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. Did you see it again? Again in the scripture? It says there's coming a time where people are coming from north, east, south, and west. What does that mean? That Jesus is bringing people from every tribe, every nation, and every tongue, and every language to dwell in the kingdom of God and to be present at the banquet of God on the date that he has set on his eschatological calendar. And there are people who are going to think, I'm going, who when they show up, the door is going to be slammed in their face and God's going to say, I didn't know you. And the reason why God wouldn't know you is that you didn't prioritize the things of God. You didn't turn from your sin. You didn't place your trust in Christ for his righteousness in place of your sinfulness. And for those people, you'll go to a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then verse 30, he wraps it up and he says, And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Jesus wasn't trying to give you some word jumbo stuff to confuse you. He's saying this, those who are first in this life, those who, remember if you go back to the context of the banquet in chapter 14, right? those who said, I'm the most important, I'm sitting in the honorable spot, I'm trying to invest in people who can make me uh, higher up the ladder, uh, he's saying those people are going to be last. But those who are last, they'll be first. So there's coming a time where those who aren't seeking their own interests and advantage or seeking that of God. They are prioritizing things that God prioritizes. They recognize their wretchedness and their brokenness, and they turn from themselves, and they turn to Christ for the righteousness that only comes from Christ. Those who this world will say is dead last, they're going to be first in the kingdom. And that's the promise of Christ over and over again in the Gospels. And really... What's the need for you and I is to respond to the gospel, to recognize some, uh, some things that the Bible says about God, that God created the whole universe, that if God created everything, that means he's in charge of everything, right? Everything about you, he made. You are just a blip in the radar of human history. And if you would recognize that and recognize that God created the whole world, he's in charge of the whole world, and that God is holy, that God is completely distinct. There is God, and then there is everything else. God is holy, and then all other things. God is not like you. God is not like me. God is completely distinct and consecrated, as we learned last week. And so he created everything. He's holy, and he's just. So important, such a concept in our culture, that God is perfectly fair, that he's perfectly just, that every single thing that God does will be perfectly divvied out according to the justness of his nature, according to the works of all people. Think about this. You want the justice of God, don't you? You want a just justice system, as I often talk about. You want the murderer that's on trial, when the judge is in the tribunal, when he hits his gavel, you want him to say, guilty. Guilty is charged. And you're going to say, that's a just judge. And a just judge can also be a loving judge. And that is God. He is just and he is loving. Now, here's the problem with our view of justice and 
our view of love when it comes to God. We want God to be perfectly just and fair for everyone except for us. We don't want God to be just with us. Because I know that if, I'm, if I get down to the brass tacks and I look at my life, I recognize that I have in store for me a lot of the justice of God in my life. And I just want God to overlook it. I don't want God, I don't want God to deal with it. I just want him to overlook at it. Does he love me enough to overlook it? God cannot overlook sin and be just. And if God cannot overlook sin and be just, then that means that God could not be loving if he's not just. God cannot love if he's unjust, because the minute that a judge is in his tribunal and he hits the gavel and that man's guilty of murder, and yet God says, innocent, he is no longer loving because he doesn't love those who are the victims. He is not loving. He would be unjust and unloving. But the picture of the gospel and the picture of God in Scripture is simply this, that God's holy, he's just, and he's loving So if he is just and no sin can be overlooked, then how can he also be loving? Enter Jesus. The fact that God says, I can't overlook sin because then it's contrary to my nature and I then reject who I am in my very being. And so therefore, Jesus comes and he takes our place here on earth. He didn't just die for your sin, he lived in your stead. As Jesus was baptized there at the River Jordan by John the Baptist and he comes up out of the water He did not get baptized for repentance of sin. He was baptized to join himself with humanity, to say, I am going to connect my righteousness with your sinfulness, and I'm going to take your place. And as Jesus lived for over three decades, but without sin, without any iniquity, so that when he took that cross upon him on the road to Calvary, and he was thrust upon that cross, On Golgotha, he could be the perfect sacrifice for the sinner. That he was perfect in his life. Him being God was efficacious, which means simply this, that because he was God, which is who he is, his death was effective for me. If I died for you, it wouldn't do much for you. If the Son of God dies for you, it means everything. And so therefore, in that, in that who he is, now the justice of God and the love of God meet at the cross where God says, because I'm just, sin has to be dealt with. Justice has to be given. Wrath has to be poured out. Judgment has to be carried out. Or I am not God. And he says, because I'm God, my son will take the punishment and the justice that is required of sin so that... Those who would turn from their sin and place their trust in Christ, in his work, his person, that he's God and that he took your place on the cross, your sin for his righteousness. If you would respond to that by turning from your sin and placing your trust in Christ, then you have a place at the banquet of God. Then you took God's invitation seriously because God takes sin seriously. And so therefore, then we can say, just as Jesus said in Mark 1.15, how do you know how to get to part of the kingdom? How do I know how to enter the kingdom? Because Mark 1.15 tells me, when Jesus steps into his earthly ministry and he begins preaching the gospel, the first things that come out of his mouth that are recorded in the gospels is this, the time is fulfilled, which means today is the day, is what Jesus said. Today is the day, the kingdom of God is at hand, therefore repent and believe in the gospel. The first words come out of Jesus' mouth in his, in his ministry. You need to repent and you need to trust in me in your place for the salvation of your soul. That's the gospel. And that's how we take God's invitation seriously. Now, for those who are in here who are in Christ, who have turned from their sins and placed uh, their trust in Christ for salvation, uh, this sermon up to this point has been a big L-shaped amen, right? That's good for all these people in here who don't know Jesus. This sermon turns to you here in verses 21 and 23 as well. Because just as there's people being called out to come to the banquet, turn from your sin, place your trust in Jesus Christ, here is the role of the Christian. Verse 21, the servant came and reported these things to his master, and the master of the house became angry and said to the servant, go to the streets, to the city lanes, and bring them here. Do you know the New Testament 
defines the believer's relationship with God in a number of ways. Last week, we learned that we are God's children, that we relate to God as his children. Uh, this week, you're going to learn uh, that the Greek word for servant is the word doulos, which is rendered slave, or if you have an ESV or other translations, it may say servant or bondservant. The other way that we relate to God, among others, is that we, he is our master and we are his slave. He is our ruler and we are subservient to him. And when we look at God and his relationship with the servant here in verses 21 through 23, we see something, a responsibility for the believer to go and bring people into the banquet. And then in verse 23, the master said to the servant, go out and compel people to come in. You see, the slave and the servant of God has an important and urgent responsibility. Go and bring and go and compel them to come on. Something that we must understand as faithful Christians in this life is that part and parcel of salvation, that means just what goes along with the package of salvation, is your responsibility to recruit and compel others to join you at the banquet of God to follow Jesus. And that's point number three on your outline. It's our job to get others on board. Write that down in your notes. Point number three, get others on board. That's our responsibility. There's another place in Scripture that tells us another title that is indicative of the Christian, and the Apostle Paul uses it in 2 Corinthians 5.20. When he says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. I mean, there's another thing, right? You're a child of God. You're a slave of God. You're an ambassador of God. You're his official representative here on earth with a message from the king. And he says this, we're ambassadors for Christ. God's making his appeal through us, and we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. I love that word, implore, right? I'm not just kicking the gospel over to you and say, have some if you'd like. I'm saying, I'm imploring you, turn from your sins, trust in Christ. There's a reason that the Son of God came down out of earth because sin is serious, judgment is sure, and righteousness comes from Christ alone. And if you want to be a part of that, you need to turn from your sin, you need to place your trust in Jesus Christ. I want you to get on board. The ship's going down. I got a lifeboat over here. I want you to get on it. I want you to get on board. I'm going to be an ambassador. We're going to implore. We're going to compel people to come on. What we know for sure, biblically, is God set a date for the banquet. We know it's there. We don't know it. No one on earth knows it. God knows it. It's a date in history future, and we've been invited. You've been offered Respond to the gospel. Come to the banquet. I want you on board. The question is, for all of us that we have to ask, is will you be there when God says, I'm coming? Let's pray.